Hey, good morning, Coastal Church. Pastor Sean here, Senior Pastor of Coastal. And uh, man, what a great morning. I'm so glad you decided to join us in worship. I want to introduce a new series that we're going to be doing over the next four weeks called Connected. And it really flows from the nature of our God. Our God is lives in community. He is a Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And He lives in community. And out of His nature, we live in community. He's created us for community. And so we want to talk about four really important relationships that we have over the next four weeks. One, we'll talk about a relationship with God. And if you're disconnected from your creator, none of the other earthly relationships you have will make sense. And so we want to talk to you about how to be connected to God. Number two, we want to talk about the family, right? Our family is a key relationship here on earth. And and it flows from the cornerstone of knowing our Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it's also the cornerstone of discipleship. Thirdly, we want to talk about our relationship with others in the community and how, what has God left us here to do? How do we serve others? And then finally, the fourth relationship is that of our church family. And how has God knitted us to be in community in our local churches? And so we really believe these four key relationships will help you in all of your relationships here on earth in this series called Connected. going to talk about, first of all, the importance of knowing God experientially. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm happy for people to have information about God, but information about God doesn't make you rightly related to him. So here's what I want to read from uh, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We need to know God experientially if we're going to be rightly related to him. There are things in that first verse I read that do not satisfy. Let, them, let the rich man and the powerful man and all these things, don't let them boast in those things. It's a word that has to do with finding our satisfaction. It's a word that has to do with us being delighted in something. Finding, taking joy in something. Those things do not provide that. Earthly wisdom. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. First of all, if we understand the scriptures correctly, wisdom comes from God. So if you have wisdom... It's not to your credit anyway. I mean, I hope you've worked at it. I hope you've tried to learn and develop and all of that. But wisdom comes from God, true wisdom. Earthly wisdom does not come from God. In fact, it, is, it doesn't take God into account, and it's limited by your own resources. Don't boast in, in being wise. Don't boast in your own power and might. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. We... Uh, applaud people who are strong and powerful, whether it be physically or whether it be that they are strong and powerful and can get things accomplished and they are just powerful people. We talk about power couples in Hollywood or wherever it happens to be. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. In fact, Solomon said, 
that there are some people who trust in chariots and some in horses. There are some people who trust in the might of this world. But we, he said, trust in the Lord our God. We trust in the name of the Lord. Earthly might, earthly wisdom will only go so far and ultimately will not satisfy. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Tell you what, if there's anything in our culture that people boast in, it's how much they've got, right? We are told we've got to keep at it. Keep getting more. Make sure you have enough. Make sure you have enough so you can leave a ton to your kids, right? Make sure you have a boatload of money. That's what really matters in the culture we live in. That's why people get so upset if there's a glitch in the stock market. Oh, no, what's happening? You hear people talk about, man, I was just making money, you know, by the boatloads, and now the market turned down, and I lost all this money. They didn't, you don't actually have that money. You know that, right? You, you, you had increase, and then you lost the increase. All you had was what you put in in the first place, and the market helps to earn money, and we get all worked up if it's not going to earn us as much as we thought it was going to earn us, and we've lost money. We shouldn't boast in our riches. In fact, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he acknowledged actually that there are wealthy people within the church. And I would suggest that in America, there are a lot more wealthy people in the average church than in the church that Timothy was part of. But Paul said, he didn't say anything about tell them not to be rich. He said, tell them two things. Tell them not to be haughty and tell them, to trust not in their riches, but in God. Don't trust in wealth. Now, if you've had any measure of wealth and you've been around a little while and you have any measure of that in things like the stock market, you know there's no point in trusting in your wealth. We've heard stories throughout our history here in America of people who had all of this wealth and they lost it all because of a big downturn in the market. And some have just completely lost hope over it. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. That doesn't satisfy. You've, you've heard the stories, right? I read stories every once in a while about another super fabulously wealthy person who just is like, yeah, it's fine. We had a guy in a church that I served in once who was a little discouraged because his small company that he owned had to sell one of their airplanes. It was a little hard for me to feel sorry for him. I don't know what to tell you. It's, we've got this fixation on having stuff. It doesn't satisfy. If you have it, you know that's true. And if your attitude is right, so what does, what does Paul say to Timothy? Teach them not to be haughty and to trust in God rather than their riches. They should what? They should be generous and willing to share. God gives us wealth, gives us resources so we can use them to the benefit of his glory by ministering to other people. Those things don't satisfy, but there are some things worth celebrating in this verse, Right? Let them boast, let them find satisfaction, let them celebrate the fact that they understand and know me. 
understand has to do with searching something out, studying it, learning about it. I understand. I learn about God. It's really important to learn about God. Our, our life and our relationship to God is not all experiential. Some of it has to do with what we learn. And in fact, the more we learn about God, the greater the depth of our worship. We need to understand God. So that assumes an acquaintance with Scripture. So that's why we are constantly saying we want you to be part of of corporate worship every weekend. We want you to be part of a small group where you get together with others and you interact about the scriptures. We want you to come to spiritual formation classes. They're not just on the calendar because we need something else to do. We, we schedule those because they're useful. They're beneficial to people. We have training and discipleship going on all the time because we do want people knowing more about the scriptures. Because in them, what did Jesus say? You need to search the scriptures, for in them you learn about me. But you also, God said, not just rejoicing that you understand me, but that you know me. That's a word that includes experience. That is, that's a word that includes relationship. You guys, many of you know my wife, but not like I do. We have a relationship that's much deeper. I understand her much more deeply than you do. The same is true in your own marriage or in your own relationships that you share. We have people, <coughs> excuse me, people that we deeply understand and know. God says that's what you need to boast in. If you're going to find satisfaction in something, do that. Because what is God like? He's the kind of person you want to get to know. He says, I am the God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Steadfast love is a word in Scripture that has to do with God's loyalty. You have people in your history that have not been there for you when you wanted them to? Have you had people in your life that you, you counted on and they just didn't follow through? God is not that way. We sang earlier about God's promises. When God makes a promise, God fulfills his promises always, without fail, because he is a God who is committed to steadfast love. When he is in a relationship with someone, he never forsakes them. He is a God committed to justice. We hear a lot about justice. Do you know why justice doesn't prevail on, on earth today in pretty much any culture? It's because people do not choose to honor God first. And I can tell you this, when you, when you read the scriptures and search out what it's going to be like in God's kingdom, for those who have followed after Jesus and loved God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, with those people living in God's kingdom, God will make everything right. There will not be injustice in God's kingdom. He is a God who loves righteousness. In fact, he doesn't just love righteousness. He is the standard of what is right. We sometimes, I think, get under the mistaken impression that there are things like righteousness and truth and holiness and all of these things and that 
God lives up to those things perfectly. That's not entirely accurate. God doesn't just live up to those things. He defines those things. Righteousness is who God is, and he loves righteousness and, of course, always lives up to his own impeccable standard. So we must know God experientially. Secondly, I want you to find Mark chapter 12. We're going to talk about loving God wholeheartedly. Somewhat familiar verses. A lawyer came up. One of the scribes, it says, came up and heard them, the Pharisees, that is, were having this debate and conversation with Jesus, and they were disputing with one another. And he saw that he, meaning Jesus, answered them well. And so he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Well, that, that would be pretty good to know, right? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, no other commandment greater than these. The specifics are heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Those are just the particular words Jesus used. He's quoting from the Old Testament. But Jesus, as he answers this question, says there are things about who you are that have to be committed wholeheartedly to God. Your heart is what animates your whole being. It's at the center. The soul is the true you. People in this day would have understood that to mean the seat of their feelings and desires and all of that. The mind is how we think. The capacity to reason and understand and the strength has to do with our capacity. With all of those things, with every fiber of your being, Jesus said, you're to love God. And you're to love your neighbor. That's number two. But now I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to not look at the specifics, but look at the big picture. Because sometimes we're, we're so good at picking things apart that we forget there's a big picture here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is what Jesus had been quoting from, right? You shall love the Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them while you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you'll bind them on your, uh, as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, those commands weren't to be specifically carried out. In fact, in the day of Jesus, they did that. The, the most uh, strenuously committed Pharisees would wear a little pouch that was wrapped around their head and it hung down right here on their forehead, hung as a frontlet between their eyes that contained Scripture because they wanted to make sure they did exactly what God said to do. That wasn't the point of the passage. The point of that passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 6 is, 
Every part of your life is to be filled with your wholehearted commitment to God. That means God doesn't get first place. God gets every place. It's not about priority. It's about pervasiveness. Yes, of course God gets first place. But when it comes to your job, he's also central there. When it comes to your relationships with your family, like we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, or your relationships with your friends, or even your relationship with the church, God gets first place in all of those things. He gets first place in your hobbies, in your leisure activities. God is central. He covers everything. Love God wholeheartedly. Don't give him the biggest piece of your heart. Give him all of your heart. Number three, worship God exclusively. Luke chapter four and verse eight. This is in the midst of the temptation of Jesus. The devil has taken him up and shown him in an instant of time all of the kingdoms of the world and said, if you will just bow down and worship me, you can have it all. Jesus answered him and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. The devil felt like he had authority to give all of this to God. He is described as the king of this age, the God of this age, right? He mistook his relative freedom in the time to be absolute authority. And he suggested to Jesus, if you'll just worship me, I'll give you all of this. And Jesus said, I will not worship you. He didn't even argue the point about whether Satan had the authority to give him those kingdoms. He knew what Satan didn't is that Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords and it's all his anyway. But he didn't argue the point. He simply looked at him and said, you will worship only God. That's part of being connected to him. It's talking about our, our heart posture. <laughs> Kneeling down, giving reverence to God. This same chapter in Deuteronomy 6 that I read from before is a section where Jesus is talking to the Israelites. God is through Moses, and he's saying, listen, you're about to go into a land that you did not work for. You are about to inherit vineyards that you didn't plant. You're about to inherit cities that you didn't build. And he said, when you do that, when you get in there and you have all of this stuff, be careful that you don't forget the Lord. Stuff makes us forget who gave it to us. It happens all the time. We come to love the gifts more than the giver. Learning to worship God exclusively has to do with heart posture. We bow only to him. That affects our possessions. 
Dare I say that should affect our politics? We bow only to God. No person, I don't care what political affiliation or leanings you have, your choice for president isn't going to save us. We worship God exclusively. It talks about our heart posture. Jesus, Satan had offered Jesus the easy path. I'll tell you what, you bow down, worship me, we'll skip this whole cross thing. It also affects our life's focus. Worship me, God says. Jesus said we worship God and him only do we serve. Isn't it interesting? The more stuff we have, the more we have to do to take care of our stuff. Down to mowing the lawn, right? It, it hasn't worked out. My days off and the rain have not cooperated. My lawn is so high right now, I feel like I'm going to have to get a harvester out there. I got to go take care of my lawn. We just had to have work done on the house because it's been around long enough that it needed a new roof. And I'm, well, it's not that I wouldn't, but my wife would not permit me to get on the roof, even if I would. It's just what happens, right? You gotta take care of your vehicles. You gotta take care of your stuff. And even our leisure time and pleasure time activities, we get this stuff by the grace of God and through the generosity of our Savior. And we have all of this stuff and now we gotta take care of all of this stuff. And it can easily take place of worship. Him only will you serve. So my service flows from a heart of worship. So I don't serve even at church just because I'm supposed to, because I have to. We didn't come out here and hang out in the sun yesterday because, well, that's another job. The pastor said, come to the block party, so I came. People came because they wanted to serve our community, wanted to care on our, about our community. There wasn't really anything overtly spiritual yesterday, Right? It was just us loving our community, caring for them, getting to know them. We loved doing that because service flows from a heart of worship to God. My activity at work, I hope that you are not uh, just a faithful, diligent employee because if you're not, you'll lose your job. I hope you're a faithful, diligent employee because that honors God. When I work hard, when I give my best effort, it honors God when I do that. In relating to my family, in relating to my friends, in all of these things, my service flows from the fact that I worship God exclusively. In fact, there's a, a word for worship in the New Testament that in the English translation, we know of it as the liturgy. And occasionally we use pieces of the liturgy and some, some uh, church uh, backgrounds use it a lot more than we do. But that word really means service. There are words in the New Testament that we would say that's a word for worship, but it's a word for serve. Worship and service go hand in hand and we worship God exclusively. And lastly, Philippians chapter 1, this is... 
familiar verse to you, I know. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21, this is talking about living for God single-mindedly, which is really hard, right? Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. This is Paul writing to the Philippians. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. And I'm going to stop reading there. But... I want you to think about the fact that Paul is sitting in prison as he writes this letter. He has shared the gospel so effectively that the only way they could get him to quit was to lock him up. Forgetting the, about the fact that in the Roman system, they, they chained guards to prisoners for shifts. So Paul now had, huh, they thought he was the captive. They were a captive audience. And other people, as he describes it there in this section of Scripture, were now stepping up and preaching, thinking that might make Paul feel bad. You can't preach, I get to. And Christ was being lifted up. And he said, I don't care who's doing it. As long as Christ is being magnified, I rejoice in that. And in fact, he said, I don't even know what's going to happen with me in prison. I'm here. I don't know if I'm going to get out of this alive or not. And he says... (laughs) These are his circumstances. I'm a little confused as to what to do. Because I'm stuck in prison and I can't get out and I may never get out of prison. I may die for my faith here. That would be better, he says. Isn't that a fascinating perspective? It would be better for me if I just die here but I don't think that's what's going to happen, he said. I think it would be better for you if I got out of prison. So I'm convinced that that's what God's going to do. He wasn't getting out because, oh, phew, I could be out of prison, and that's really annoying to be in prison, among other things. No, I think God's going to free me from prison because it would be better for you. I would get to serve. So why? He summarizes it with those few words there in that first verse we read. For me, life equals Christ. To live is Christ. Whatever I do, it's fruitful labor. If I get to continue living, if I get to continue being in this life and get out of prison, great, I get to serve Christ. And death is gain. What is gain? It's just more of something, right? If I gave you a $100 bill, and then I said, okay, you can keep that $100 bill, or what else I would give you would allow you to gain, what would you assume? You would assume there's going to be more money involved. Because what I have, if I gain, I get more of what I have. For Paul, life equals Christ. Death just equals more of Christ. Because now I'm not walking by faith if I'm home with Jesus. I see him face to face. I get to enjoy his presence directly. And Paul says, I'm I'm a little conflicted. We so easily get wrapped up in this world 
God willing, we are headed out of town next week, and we're going to spend some time with our grandbabies. Best time of life for grandparents is when they get to just love on their grandkids and have a good time hanging out with them. It makes me conflicted. If I thought I might not live long enough to see them, would my heart be so single-mindedly devoted to Jesus that I would say, oh, that's great, I'll go home to heaven? Or would there be a conflict in my spirit? I really would like to see those boys. There's a conflict, I admit that. And Paul's having a conflict, right? It isn't that, that he just wants to die and get out of prison. He, he's struggling, though, because he knows heaven is so incredible that for him it would be the best possible thing. But because of the benefit to the Philippian Christians and others with whom he has influence, he believes God will keep him here. That won't matter because for him life is Christ. That's living for God single-mindedly. So you've jotted down those four things. How do we wrap that up? Four seemingly separate things, but really not, right? We, we love God, and we, we, we commit ourselves to him. It begins by knowing him experientially. You know that if you come here uh, long enough, you will hear the gospel over and over and over again. Some of you may wonder, why do you do that every single week? Well, first of all, because there may be somebody sitting here that has never trusted in Jesus, and I want to make sure they don't get the chance to leave without hearing it, not on my watch. But secondly, I hope that it helps to equip you, because most of the gospel work of Coastal Church doesn't happen in these rooms, in the auditorium. It happens as you go through life, as you go to work, as you hang out with your neighbors, as you see your family members, and all of those things that you get a chance to make sure they understand the gospel. So what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus, who is God himself, came in the flesh, took on flesh, lived the life I could never live. He lived in perfect accord with the law of God. I... I have long ago messed that up, and I know that I'm going to continue to struggle. But Jesus lived perfectly for me. And then it came to what we celebrated last week, right? Over the course of the week previous, we call it Holy Week because Jesus was brought to trial by wicked men, handed over to the Romans, and he was crucified, and he died. And he died paying the penalty for sin. And then he was actually buried. He was dead, and they put him inside a tomb. And on the third day, he came back to life again. That's the gospel. Jesus lived the life I could never live. He died in my place. He was buried, and he came back to life again. Actual bodily resurrection of Christ. What do I have to do with that? I repent of my sin. I turn from the ways in which I have not honored God with my life. And I haven't yet met a thinking person who says, well, then I'm good, I have nothing to turn from. I did hear one person say that that was pretty well known a couple years ago. I haven't done anything I have to repent of. Someone is 
desperately blind to believe that. Because we've talked about this before, right? God doesn't grade on a curve. You don't get to, you don't get to heaven on 70% or 80%. God doesn't say, well, most people are in about the 40% line, so I'll just make that good enough. No. It's 100% perfect righteousness. That's why Jesus had to live perfectly. So I repent of my sin, I believe in the gospel, and I receive Jesus. And when I do that, my sin gets counted as paid for at the cross when Jesus paid for sin. And his righteousness gets applied to my account. And that's how God can now look at me and say, he is in my son. The righteousness of my son, which is perfect righteousness, has been applied to his account so I can bring him home to be with me. That's the gospel. That's how I know God experientially. So let me ask you this then. What kind of things need to be moved down your priority list that are a little too high on the list that are keeping you from loving God single-mindedly or serving him single-mindedly, loving him with all of your heart? Are there things that are just needing to be adjusted and brought down a few pegs on that list so that God can be first and all in all for you. Remember, it's not just about giving God first priority, first place. It's about God being pervasive in everything you do. That's how I get connected to God. I have to be rightly related to him. So if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, man, we'd love to talk to you about that. We've got people that will be down front here uh, toward the end of the service. If you want to come and talk to them, if you want to try and grab me or Pastor Marcus is here, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Grab one of these worship team members. Let them sit down with you and go through that gospel message again. It's, it's really a simple process, but it is the starting point. We have to be rightly related to God. We have to be connected to God first.